Beast Watch News, watching the rising beast of Revelation. This week's news brings the end times prophecies closer to fulfillment as men begin to panic under the weight of their desires for world dominance. Israel's internal turmoil is causing consternation in the White House. In this report is Donald Trump's reaction. Iran's internal turmoil is bringing war between Iran and the U.S. and Israel closer. And look for Russia to get involved. The fall of Mystery Babylon is brewing on Yahweh's fire even before she has fully risen to power. Let's take a look. The lack of an Israeli government and Netanyahu's indictment last week could be forcing President Donald Trump's hand for the peace deal because of his frustration at the deadlock in Israel's government. U.S. officials who were reportedly readying the rollout of the peace plan earlier this year have said they are now waiting until an Israeli government is formed to release the peace proposal. According to Times of Israel, President Trump has passively intervened in Israel's elections by reversing the Obama administration on Israeli settlements week before last. The Times of Israel says this reversal has provided the incentive for Israel's warring political parties to bury their hatchets and form a new Israeli government within the next 21 days. Israel needs a new government within the next 21 days or they will face another expensive and debilitating election in March 2020 just as Trump is beginning his bid for re-election when he might consider it inappropriate to release his plan. Times of Israel has published another article about the peace plan saying the WeWork CEO who worked on the Trump peace plan infused his company culture with Kabbalah. This is important for you to understand because it has to do with Rising Mystery Babylon. It was Vanity Fair which exposed how kibbutz-born CEO Adam Neumann saw himself as a global leader who partnered with Jared Kushner and Mohammed bin Salman. Neumann's company has collapsed now and it is said that he talks of himself as a martyr. Aside from Neumann's business troubles, what you need to know is that Neumann is a Kabbalist. That Jewish Kabbad Kabbalistic supremacy doctrine is bound to be covertly and hidden all through the peace deal. This is why I suspect the unveiling of the deal will cause war in the West Bank. The peace deal will be lopsided toward Israel. According to Vanity Fair, as quoted in Times of Israel, Neumann and his wife Rebecca were devout followers of Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical faith, and it infused WeWork's office culture. One employee said key meetings were often scheduled for the 18th of the month because 18 is a sacred number in Kabbalah's 32 paths to wisdom. Adam encouraged senior WeWork executives to participate in weekly study sessions with his spiritual advisor at the time, Rabbi Eitan Yardeni.
This is forcing Judaism on his non-Jewish company CEOs and their staffs. According to Vanity Fair, last summer Neumann assigned WeWork's Director of Development Ronnie Bahar to hire an advertising firm to produce a slick video for Kushner that would showcase what an economically transformed West Bank and Gaza would look like. Kushner showed a version of the video during his speech at the White House's Peace Conference in Bahrain last summer. The article further reveals other details of Neumann's personality, namely that Neumann's messianism became more like megalomania, noting that he discussed the Syrian refugee crisis with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and urban planning with London Mayor Sadiq Khan. When Adam got in front of world leaders, it is said in this article, it was like he started thinking he was... One, He was a world leader, a former executive told Vanity Fair. Neumann also said he was saving the women of Saudi Arabia by working with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman to offer women coding classes. In short, Adam Neumann is close to having a messiah complex if he doesn't already have an outright messiah complex. In one meeting, the article claimed Neumann said three people were going to save the world, Ben Salman, Jared Kushner, and Neumann. And after the killing of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, widely blamed on Ben Salman, Neumann reportedly told George W. Bush's former national security advisor Stephen Hadley that everything could be worked out if Ben Salman only had the right mentor him. I expect this Kushner-Neumann peace plan to spark war because it will be about expanding the Israeli state as a Jewish-only state and won't have much in it for the Palestinians. Such a peace plan can only be enforced through war. Now, that's a dichotomy, isn't it? From CS Monitor we read... The settlement policy reversal coming as it did in the midst of Trump's impeachment inquiry in Washington and the political upheaval in Israel raised a bevy of questions about timing and motivation. It was the announcement, which seemed to come out of the blue, designed to boast a beleaguered Benjamin Netanyahu's chances of holding on to Israel's premiership, some wondered or was its aim to distract from Washington's impeachment hearings? Well, in other words, is Trump hoping that the warring political parties will be so inspired by him that they will drop their antics and come together just to receive the final rollout of the peace plan and will his renewed focus on Israel's problems keep Americans from paying attention to the impeachment nonsense? In fact, his recent uptick in war with Iran may be a deterrence tactic as well. Trump's progress for setting up the field for the success of his deal is as followed. Trump has been progressively signposting his roadmap 
for the last two years, moving the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, declaring Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, closing down the Palestinian Liberation Organization offices in Washington, withdrawing American funding for the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, giving a substantial aid package to Jordan, recognizing Israeli sovereignty in the Golan Heights, having Bahrain host the Peace to Prosperity workshop to discuss the economic part of Trump's deal of the century, and flagging Israel's right to retain at least some, but, and we, this author quotes, unlikely all of Judea and Samaria. What seems indisputable is that the legitimizing of Israeli settlements was another in a string of presidential decisions that have given Israel long-coveted U.S. policy shifts without asking anything in return. In addition to alienating the Palestinians, the decisions appear to have closed the door further on the traditional two-state solution for resolving the conflict, the vision of two states living side by side in peace and security. All of these decisions are significant, but one of the biggest changes is simply that this administration, starting with the president, has stopped citing the two-state solution as the goal, says Lucy Kurtzer-Ellenbogen, director of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict Program at the U.S. Institute of Peace in Washington. Well, yes, he has. That is why the Jordan option, or some parts of it, could be part of Trump's peace plan. The funding on settlements is consistent with what the Trump administration has done in the past, which is basically telling the Palestinians, don't assume the status quo is going to be there forever. That had discouraged you from getting serious on negotiations, he says. In other words, Trump is saying, look, you Palestinians, your time in Israel is almost up. And that is putting Jordan on the defensive. It is possible that relations between Israel and Jordan could slip sideways even while Israel has no government in place. In fact, the slippage has already begun. It started with Jordan's non-renewal of Bakora and Al-Gamar this month, land that Israel said it will now annex. This is straining ties with Jordan. The only commonality with Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt Israel has at this point is their mutual fear of Iran. The growing occupation of the West Bank, as well as announcements such as Netanyahu's election eve pledge to annex swaths of the occupied Jordan Valley, are treated in Amman as an existential threat. I see great danger to the peace treaty, the former Mossad chief Ephraim Halevi said at an Israeli research institute in September. The Israeli lack of attention and real analysis of this issue, taking Jordan for granted as a state having no choice but relying on Israel, are the factors severely endangering the treaty's existence, he said. Nimrod Gorin, the founder and head of Mitvim, an Israeli think tank that works to promote Israeli 
Arab-Israeli relations, said every time there was tension with the Palestinians, it played out in Jordan-Israel ties. That is something the Israeli government tries not to acknowledge. They try to say that Arab relations are now unrelated to the Israeli-Palestinian track. It's the Netanyahu narrative, he said. To reach its 30th anniversary, the treaty will first need to survive the machinations around the so-called ultimate deal, the Trump administration's anticipated plan to build peace with Israelis and Palestinians. Jordanians fear a barnstorming Trump peace drive could rob the country of its special role in maintaining Jerusalem's important Muslim sites, cement the occupation of Palestinian territories, or further sideline Jordan as the Arab world's chief interlocutor with Israel. The overwhelming preference of Jordan's government will be to remain in the treaty, says Anani. Jordan's position is that, okay, if there is Trump's deal of the century, let's negotiate our way out of it, he says. And can we do that better with a peace treaty with Israel than without it? But even in a country with limited democracy, popular opinion can only be managed for so long, others warn. The treaty is a double-edged sword, says Sharif. It helps Jordan achieve certain goals, but it can also hurt Jordan, because once we exhaust all diplomatic channels to exert pressure on Israel, what do we do then? Along with the strain on the Israel-Jordan peace treaty is another issue that of getting the remains of Sami Abu Diak returned from Israel to Jordan. Jordanian Foreign Minister Ayman Safadi is seeking the return of Sami Abu Diak's body, who authorities said was convicted by an Israeli court of voluntary manslaughter, kidnapping, attempted murder, and opening fire on people, who died at the Asaf Harafe Medical Center in Ber Yaakov following a battle with cancer at the age of 35. Abu Diak was serving three life sentences because he was allegedly involved in the killing of three Palestinians accused of collaborating with Israeli security forces. Israel's foreign ministry did not respond to questions about Jordan's request, but Naftali Bennett did. More on that in a minute. Israel often takes a long time to release the bodies of Palestinian prisoners who have died in its custody. Hassan Abad Rabo, a spokesman for the Palestinian Authority Prisoners Affairs Commission, said, There are many martyrs that Israel is holding on to in its morgue, he said in a phone call, asserting that the Jewish state still possessed the remains of at least three Palestinians who died in Israeli captivity in the past year, including Bassem Alsea. Naftali Bennett issued a new policy after Jordan made its request for Abu Diak's body. The new policy is that Israel will no longer release the bodies of terrorists. Israel said the decision came following a number of discussions that he held on the issue of deterrence with senior security officials. Now, there is no mention of Jordan's request for Abu Diak's body associated with Naftali Bennett's new policy. 
However, M.K. Joseph Jabarin from the Arab Joint List expressed strong criticism of the new policy. Bennett is contemptuously politicizing a humanitarian issue, and this must be firmly opposed, Jabarin said in a statement. Holding bodies and preventing immediate burial, burial rather, is immoral and contrary to the international law. He accused Netanyahu, Bennett, and Bezalel Smotrich's government of stealing land, torturing people, destroying homes, and now holding Palestinians' bodies, thereby collectively punishing their relatives for their wrongdoing. The new policy certainly goes a long way in making a statement to Jordan that Israel is ticked off. So guess what? According to this breaking Israel news article, King Abdullah has threatened that Israel won't be part of the Middle East. Relations between Jordan and Israel are at an all-time low, King Abdullah told the Washington Institute for Middle East Policy, and this comes from a reporter named Mako. Regarding the Israeli-Arab conflict, Abdullah added that if we do not solve the Israeli-Palestinian issue, Israel cannot really be part of the Middle East, calling it a sensitive and emotional issue. The king also said that part of this is due to internal Israeli issues. I think that no small amount of us in this room believe that the only way forward is the two-state solution, because the alternative is much worse, he added. You know what the alternative is? the Jordan option. Every year that we lose makes it more complicated and it is more difficult for Israelis and Palestinians to move forward, Abdullah said. In what could be called a special message sent from Jordan to Israel this week, the Jordanian government began military training for defenses against an invading Israeli army on November 25th. Folks, this is getting serious. The article says it should be noted that the official Jordanian reports did not explicitly state that the maneuvers simulated a battle with Israel. However, this can be understood from the name, which hints at the Battle of Karama. And because the maneuvers simulated an enemy army invasion via bridges, that is, bridges over the Jordan River, that forms the border between the two countries. Additionally, the division that carried out the maneuvers is part of Jordan's Central Command. On November 26, the local Jordanian website rumonline.net published an article titled The Swords of Karama, Maneuvers, A Hint to Whom and When. The article focused on one photo from the maneuvers showing King Abdullah, Jordanian military commanders, and Jordanian officials standing in front of a model of Jordan's western border in the Dead Sea region. Jordan's Joint Chief of Staff said we are prepared to defend our territory and to strike with an iron hand at anyone daring to harm our security. 
The article concludes, It appears that this is expected in light of the deterioration of relations with the occupying state and the increasingly harsh tone of Israel's statements vis-à-vis Jordan. It seems that we will be waging a cool battle with the occupier in the near future. That speech for Cold War between Israel and Jordan. Trump's peace plan should seal the start of this war nicely, and if not the peace deal, the natural decline of friendly relations will do it. The Jordanians know that Israel is eyeing Jordan and that they want to annex all of Jordan to make it part of the Israeli state. Last week, the Russian government accused Israel of violating Jordanian airspace when Israeli aircraft flew over the country on Monday on their way to attack targets near the Syrian-Iraqi border. The Middle East is becoming an even bigger ticking time bomb. Now let's turn our attention to the U.S. and Iran. You know that Iran killed 140 three people, an unknown number, were wounded and over a thousand were arrested in the previous protests at a central bank on November 16th. Well, Iran cut off internet access for several days and this week there were more protests in Iran and the demonstrators have accused the government of torturing those who were arrested and detained in the previous protest. This article from Associated Press presents information about the current protests. Protesters angry over government-set gasoline prices spiking in Iran attacked hundreds of banks, police outposts, and gas stations in the demonstrations, Tehran acknowledged Wednesday, as its supreme leader alleged without evidence that a conspiracy involving the U.S., caused the unrest. Khomeini, who has final say in all matters of state, described the protests as being orchestrated by global arrogance, which he often uses to refer to the U.S. and Zionists. He described America as seeing the price hikes as an opportunity to bring their troops to the field, but the move was destroyed by the people. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani, a relative moderate within Iran's ruling Shiite theocracy, similarly blamed America for the protests without offering evidence. He called violent protesters mercenaries and hooligans, alleging the U.S. sent money over two years to spark the demonstrations. Iran's moderate news website, Entekab, quoted Hossein Nagavi Hosseini, a member of Parliament's National Security and Foreign Policy Committee, is saying more than 7,000 people have now been arrested in the demonstrations. Interior Minister Abdulreza Rahmani Fasil also claimed in an interview late on Tuesday on state television that some 500 people tried to storm Iran's state television offices. He also estimated as many as 200,000 people took part in the demonstrations, higher than previous claims. He said demonstrators damaged over 50 police stations as well as 34 ambulances, 731 
31 banks and 70 gas stations in the country. We have individuals who were killed by knives, shotguns, and fires, he said, without offering a casualty figure. The head of Iran's Revolutionary Guard on Monday threatened to destroy the United States and its Middle Eastern allies, accusing them during a televised speech of instigating the violent protests that erupted earlier this month after the announcement of massive fuel price hikes. Speaking of tens of thousands of people holding signs with anti-U.S. slogans in Tehran's Revolution Square, General Hussein Salami accused the U.S., Britain, Saudi Arabia, and Israel of fueling the deadly unrest. The government has called for capital punishment for rioters and further restrictions on social media and have criticized President Hassan Rouhani's administration for the way the fuel hike was implemented. These protests show the boiling anger of many as the country's economy struggles under renewed American sanctions. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says Washington has received nearly 20,000 messages, videos, pictures, notes from Iranians depicting what he called human rights abuses in Tehran's response to an outbreak of anti-government protests in the country. And herein lies the clue. Why are Iranians sending messages to the U.S.? Why are they not sending messages to their ally, Russia? Perhaps they are sending messages to Russia, but the U.S. is known for stirring the protest pot in order to make regime changes. Iran believes the U.S. is behind these protests, and I believe it too. President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu want Iran destroyed. Iran stands in the way of Israel's dominance in the Middle East. In prophetic terms, Iran is in the way of rising mystery Babylon. By the way, so is Jordan now. The ongoing conflict also serves a purpose with Americans and Israelis at election time. But there is more to this than hegemony and two men who want to stay in power. There is the peace deal. The deal is touted by Trump and Netanyahu as the cure for the Middle East's woes. And both know this is not true. The Iranians don't care one hoot about the Palestinians only insofar as they can help Iran in its war for dominance. A peace deal would be a setback for Iranian foreign policy. It would mean Iran attacking Israel directly from outside rather than funding Hamas in Gaza and the Palestinian terrorists in the West Bank. But there is more. It will be easier for Israel to take Jordan if Iran is disabled. The U.S. is behind the protests over the crumbling Iranian economy because of the U.S. sanctions. To that end, the commander-in-chief of Iran's Revolutionary Guards threatened the United States, Britain, and Saudi Arabia in a speech on Monday during a gathering of regime supporters in Tehran.
Hussein Salami, directing his remarks at the leaders of these countries, said, You have been slapped hard by us and have not been able to respond, but if you cross the red lines, we will annihilate you, referring to the U.S. drone shot down over the Persian Gulf in June, the detained British-flagged tanker in July, and the drone and missile attacks on Saudi oil installations in September. All this without encountering any military response. Salami told the crowd, Believe me, we are now in a world war. And at this moment, you are in the process of defeating all the power of arrogance, meaning the U.S. and the West. He added, Our enemy is exhausted, and its military is corroded, and no power can stand against the army and guards of Islam. He also insisted that the protests were an international conspiracy. The protests come as the U.S. closes in on Iran's border. Using its relationship with the Kurds as renewed allies, the U.S. is creating a front against Iran. This Debka report says, As the U.S. military takes up new positions against Iran on the Syria-Iraq border, a major Mideast event seems to be brewing with a key role for Israel. This is strongly indicated by the comings and goings of top U.S. officials this weekend. General Mark Milley, chairman of the U.S. Chiefs of Staff, is in Israel as the guest of Israel's Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Aviv Kokavi. On Saturday, November 23rd, the commander of U.S. CENTCOM, General Kenneth McKenzie, predicted that Iran will probably launch another attack in the Middle East. At a regional conference in Manama, Bahrain, McKenzie said that although 14,000 additional U.S. soldiers were deployed in the Persian Gulf since the spring, they did not deter Iran from attacking a Saudi oil field. On Saturday, too, Vice President Mike Pence paid an unannounced trip to Iraq for a special briefing on the situation at the Syrian-Iraqi border at the U.S. al-Assad Air Base. These movements came after the top-secret Israeli airstrike last Tuesday, November 19th, on a mysterious Iranian target near the Syrian town of Abu Kamal, close to the Iraqi border. Neither Israel nor Iran revealed what that was about, except to admit that it occurred. Most significantly, Pence chose to arrive in Iraqi at Erbil, capital of the semi-autonomous Kurdish Republic, rather than Baghdad, and the first person he met was the KRG's president, Nakhravan Barzani. He only put in a brief phone call to Iraqi Prime Minister Adel Abdul Mahdi. The vice president's actions signified the, renew, the revival rather, of the U.S.-Kurdish alliance, not just with the Syrian branch, but also with their Iraqi brethren. Indeed, the outcry over the Trump administration's desertion of the Syrian Kurds in the wake of the Turkish invasion earlier this month neatly camouflaged the substantial influx of U.S. troops arriving in the Kurdish regions of eastern Syria this month. American encampments there, far from being evacuated, have been substantially augmented by new military facilities, two of them 
air bases. Depkafile's military sources have learned that U.S. engineering units are erecting one new base near Al-Sur in the Deir Ezzor region and another near the town of Amuda. These bases are partly designed to counter the Russian Air Force's establishment of a military air base in the Kurdish town of Kamishli, so that the U.S. does not lose control of the northeastern Syria border near the Iraqi border to Moscow. However, the newly boosted U.S. deployment in that corner of Syria has a more pressing mission. As Tehran tightens its grip on Baghdad and its Revolutionary Guards elite Al-Quds brigades take over command of the Iraqi Shiite militias stationed on the Iraqi-Syrian border, this part of Syria gains in strategic importance. The topped-up U.S. military presence is becoming the only real obstruction for preventing Iran creating a direct bridge between its forces in Iraq, Syria, and Hezbollah in Lebanon. On this point, American and Israel strategic interests converge, especially when both anticipate hostilities exploding in this part of the Syria-Iraq border in the near future, and the importance of this region growing in the coming weeks and months. The talks the top U.S. soldier, General Milley, conducted in Israel no doubt focused on the Israel Defense Forces' role in these events. Furthermore, according to Debka, Iran is now poised to strike U.S. and Israeli targets while the U.S. is gearing up for action and has moved the USS Lincoln aircraft carrier into the Persian Gulf. The U.S. and Iran ramped up their preparations for direct military engagement on Monday, November 25th. A top Iranian general threatened to destroy the U.S., Israel, and Saudi Arabia, and the USS Abraham Lincoln Carrier Strike Force moved into position opposite central Iran's coastline. Addressing a mass pro-government rally in Tehran, Iran's Revolutionary Guards Chief General Hussein Salami shouted while burning U.S. and Israeli flags, We have shown restraint. We have shown patience toward the hostile moves of America, the region, the Zionist region, rather, and Saudi Arabia. Our patience has a limit. And military sources find the clue to Iran's next move in his assertion that its patience has a limit. It indicates that while up till now Tehran hesitated to set a date for its next strike on an American or Israeli target, or both, Iran has now finally decided to go forward. Aware that this strike may come at any moment, CENTCOM Chief General Kenneth McKenzie predicted on Saturday that Iran will probably launch another attack in the Middle East. Iran's leaders were also spurred toward military action by the return of the U.S. Lincoln Carrier Strike Force for the Gulf for the first time since May. Large-scale U.S. Marine, Navy, and air might aboard the Lincoln are now in position opposite Iran's shores. The U.S. has taken up position on two fronts now.
On land, U.S. and Kurdish forces form a front in Syria and Iraq. On sea, the U.S. Lincoln Carrier Strike Force forms another front. But then there is Israel. Do not think that Israel will not get into this fight. However, this is not the King of the North War yet. Daniel 11, 40-45 describes this war as Iran's attack on Israel's soil, not Israel attacking Iranian soil. Although such an attack on Iran could be the final provocation they need to attack Israel directly, Ezekiel 38.5 says Persia, that's Iran, will come into Israel at the same time as Gog, who is in Israel doing battle brother against brother, according to Ezekiel 38.21. The timing of this could mean that Gog, the U.S., is trying to help Israel oust their Hebrew-Palestinian brethren from the land and into Jordan. The Palestinians are not brethren, with one caveat. The house of Judah remained in Persia from the time of Babylon to today. So, in that regard, fighting with the Persians means fighting one's own brethren. The Iranians also took note of the arrival in Israel of U.S. General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint U.S. Chiefs of Staff, and his quiet talks with Israeli Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Aviv Kokavi. Their joint statement, the two generals discussed operational questions and regional developments, was interpreted in Tehran as meaning that the U.S. and Israel had finalized coordinated plans for joint military operations against the Islamic Republic. It appears this configuration complies with Ezekiel 38, which describes the Gog War in Israel in that the King of the North will attack Israel while Gog is fighting for peace, likely Trump's peace deal that will have to be enforced through war. The current situation describes the King of the South coalition provoking war with Iran who has at this point been so thoroughly provoked that there is now no way out of the coming conflict through peaceful negotiations. The U.S. and Israel are stirring the hornet's nest. Bloomberg says the U.S. is firing blanks against Iran now. This subheading, the end of a United Nations arms embargo next year, could turbocharge Tehran's military power. Hints at a reason Iran has raised its gasoline prices, which is to have money to purchase additional firepower to fight the U.S., Having played his aces too early on Iran's nuclear program, President Donald Trump now has only a weak hand against a new threat from the Islamic Republic. The Pentagon is warning that the regime will buy advanced conventional weapons like tanks and jet fighters toward the end of next year when a United Nations embargo ends. The only way Iran can make those purchases now is to squeeze its people's pockets. And if this soon-coming battle is not so soon-coming, it will only be because Iran is not ready for war yet. 
In a compromise linked to Iran's 2015 nuclear deal with the world powers, the UN agreed that starting in October 2020, the regime could purchase arms it doesn't produce. Iran is already in talks with Russia to buy Su-30 fighters, Yak-130 trainers, T-90 tanks, S-400 air defense systems and Bastion coastal defense systems. It may also be in the market for Chinese military hardware. The Trump administration has been trying to rally support for extending the embargo. At a recent UN Security Council meeting, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo warned that allowing the Islamic Republic access to sophisticated weapons would create new turmoil in the Middle East. Pompeo is right. Iran has used its existing military strength and capabilities to prop up the dictator Bashar al-Assad in Syria and to equip Hezbollah in Lebanon as well as proxy militias in Iraq and Yemen. It will likely use new arms to strengthen these groups and menace other states in the region. But Pompeo can expect no sympathy in the Security Council, and not just because of at least two other veto-wielding permanent members, China and Russia, are potential arms suppliers to Iran. By pulling the U.S. out of the nuclear deal against the pleas of the other signatories, the Trump administration may not even be able to count on the support of France and Britain. It may be that Trump miscalculated the influence of the U.S. over its allies and that shortly before the King of the North strikes Israel, it will have purchased some very dangerous armaments. The U.S.'s most powerful non-kinetic weapon economic sanctions should scare off most arms manufacturers says this Bloomberg article the real test will come when Russia and Chinese suppliers have to weigh their options between US sanctions and Iranian orders worth billions of dollars the sanctions will make it impossible for them to do business in the US and hard to sell to others who want to remain on good terms with the Americans Sanctions may also be deployed with great effectiveness against executives and officials. Against that, the individuals may have to weigh political pressure from Moscow and Beijing to make the deals. This assumes that the political and diplomatic climate will have stayed the same. However, Yahweh is conducting this orchestra, and the U.S. president could suffer a considerable change of position between now and then. Now back to the article. The best the Trump administration may be able to do is tighten the sanctions that bar the Iranian regime from many financial transactions and hope that arms manufacturers won't do business with a regime that can't actually pay. Thus the reason for raising the prices of gasoline in Iran. This may be only the first way the Iranian government will squeeze more juice from its people. The U.S. may also have to end waivers on Iranian hydrocarbons exports to prevent any oil-for-weapons deals. This will especially infuriate the Chinese at a time when Trump needs Beijing's cooperation to get a new trade deal. How might China and Russia respond? 
they may have reasons to keep Iran from becoming too strong militarily. Russia is in competition with Iran for influence in Syria and may not want Assad to have access to Iranian tanks and jets. Well, I think this is an inaccurate analysis of the situation. The prophetic sense is that Russia is in this with Iran, albeit Russia is trying to hold back Iran from an all-out war at this time. This could be because Russia may not feel quite ready to take on the U.S. on U.S. soil yet. In fact, 2 Kings 2 verses 23 to 25 is a great tribulation prophecy that describes this situation where two bears attack 42 defiant boys, read 42 months, at the same time. Daniel 7.5 tells us that ancient Medo-Persia was described as a bear. The Medo-Persians have a long history that I have detailed in other reports. Suffice to say, the modern Russians and Iranians are the same people. In the end of days, they look like two bears. I have given links to some articles with the details of my scripture and history studies. Be sure to go over there and click on those and read about that. Further in Jeremiah 50 and 51, we read about the final fulfillment of the extinction of Babylon in the end of days. Jeremiah 51:11 says, "Make the make bright the arrows, gather the shields. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, for his device is against Babylon to destroy it, because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of his temple." Much of these two chapters in Jeremiah chapters 50 and 51 have already had a near fulfillment with the destruction of what I call Middle Babylon. That's the one between Nimrod's Babylon and end times Jerusalem Mystery Babylon. Descriptors of Mystery Babylon that riddle these two chapters are quite the same as Revelation's words describing Mystery Babylon. Some of these prophecies being fulfilled leaves yet a lot that have not been fulfilled including what will happen to the daughter of Babylon which I believe is the United States and which is also affected in these two chapters. Both Mystery Babylon, the mother and the daughter are destroyed and because these chapters mention them both I believe they are to be destroyed at the same time. This corroborates the two bears destroying 42 boys in Second Kings which is a euphemism for the sons of the house of Jacob who are at this moment split into two houses and two nations one of which is the mother and the other the daughter. Jeremiah 51.11 regards the fall of Jerusalem, the Babylon that Revelation calls mystery. These verses regard the destruction of her daughter, Jeremiah 50.42. They shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel and will not show mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea, and they shall ride upon horses, every one put in array, like a man to the battle against you, O daughter of Babylon.' 
And in Jeremiah 51:33, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, The daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. It is time to thresh her. Yet a little while, and the time of her harvest shall come. Thus the Russian bear will turn the sister bear loose when Yahweh's timing has come. The Russian bear will kill the daughter, the U.S., while the Iranian bear will destroy Israel, Mystery Babylon. Yahweh is orchestrating everything, arranging the time and the ferocity of the Great Tribulation against His people as punishment, and the world as well, from keeping Israel's government hanging in the balance and heading toward a religious state, to the instigation of the Gog Magog and King of the North wars to come. What details the scripture doesn't tell us are now found in the headlines, the prophecies of which are there for all to see, if only they would. That's it for this Beast Watch News Update. This is Kimberly Rogers-Brown signing off. Click over to BeastWatchNews.com for full comprehensive coverage of all the headlines fulfilling end-of-days Bible prophecies.